Well, it's quite interesting today because we're on a kind of a second part of this scripture verse, except for this week we're at the beginning and last week we were at the end. And it's kind of one of those things that you should tell people where they're going from the beginning so they know where they're going. Well, last week we said that a little bit when we talked about how the story of the mother hen and I invited us to read the gospel through an agrarian lens. And what I mean by that is read the gospel basically as if you're someone who knows the life on a farm a little bit. And if you did so, it talked about how God wants to be this mother hen, right? That, and, and it calls Herod the fox. And what I talked about was how that the mother hen provides the shadow of the wing, but the mother hen does not provide the protection that sometimes we want to give. And, and I say that because I read a lot through the lens now of a different, not agrarian, but of a parent, because parenting still is somewhat new, but my youngest is turning five, which is crazy, and so that means I have like nine years of living life through the lens of being a parent, and just as much as you can read the gospel through the lens of an agrarian life, you can also read it if you are a parent or you're a Hanai parent through the lens of caring for others, and, and I say that because we want to be the mother bear, right? That's what we talked about last week. We want to be the one who comes in and protects our children from harm that will come their way, and we don't want anything bad to happen because we just love them and we care for them and we want good to befall them. But God invites us not to be the mother bear, but the mother hen that provides love and peace, not necessarily protecting us from all harm, but giving us a sense of home, a sense of comfort. Well, today we're talking a little bit about coming home, about learning to come home. And I'm, again, going to read this scripture just for a minute through the lens of a parent, and I want to tell you a story. It's the, probably the greatest thing that no parent ever told me about parenting, and I've had to learn it on my own, because, you know, when I was watching my brother's kids, you know, I would think to myself, well, my kids are going to do it differently, right? You know, because everyone thinks that their kids are going to do it differently. And, you know, you think about even your own parents, and in my household growing up, uh, you know, loud voices were a normal thing. It wasn't like super calm. So if there was something bad happening, you know, you got a sharp response and, and direction. And, you know, I was going to be the calm and collected parent, right? And, and I, I can do it. I can do it. And what no one told me is that you can do it. The problem is you got to do it again and again and again. And probably the most infuriating thing, right, is when you look at your child and you say to them, don't do that, okay? It hurts someone feeling. You give them all the reasoning even, and then they look at you, and then they smile, and they nod, and they go, I'm sorry. And then they go right back to doing the same thing that they were just doing, right? Just doing. Going right back to doing the same thing they were just doing. And, you know, really in my mind, in some of those moments, you know, when like a middle child is pestering his brothers or whatever it is, I don't even care what they do next, as long as it's not the exact same thing that they're doing that I just corrected them on, right? And that's when like the like anger and frustration as a parent starts building, right? Oh, it's just me? Okay, no, okay, all right. Sounds good. Well, that's my experience, at least. This idea that just stop doing what you're doing. Just stop doing what you're doing and the anger and frustration that's there. 
I read that into this scripture. This scripture is really kind of crazy. It's very apocalyptic. They talk about it's cryptic. Jesus is talking about a fig tree. He's talking about people perishing. He's talking about all sorts of things. But honestly, I think if you can take away this idea that just stop doing what you're doing, just stop doing what you're doing. That's a key point for what God in Jesus was trying to get across. Well, so now what in fact was Jesus telling us to stop doing? Well, look at the beginning of the passage, and what does Jesus do? He also starts telling these stories about these character or these people that tragic things have happened in their lives. You know, there's the Galileans who had died, and they had done some stuff with the emperor and things like that, and like, there's rumors about how they were mixing the emperor cult's religious practices with their religious practices, and, you know, all these bad things were happening, well, probably because of that, right? You know, you're doing bad things, you're mixing religious idols together, bad things are going to happen. And then similarly, you know, there's this group of people that were worshiping and a temple falls on them, like a tower falls on them. And of course, when the bad thing happens, it was probably because they were doing something bad. Or at least that was the idea at the time. It's called retributive justice. Kind of tit for tat. When when you're doing something bad, something bad is going to happen to you. Jesus in this gives two examples of it, both of which, frankly, in the time, have pretty good cause and relation, like they were doing something they shouldn't have been done, and something bad happened to them. But in both instances, you want to know what he says? No, it is not because they were doing anything wrong. It's not because they were doing anything wrong. So one of the things I like the least in Christian culture, or I should say whenever anything bad happens in the world, is that all of a sudden you get that crazy person on the news that says, right, this is happening because they were sinning, you know? I think it was like when uh, Jerry Falwell or someone had said something about it, like when the Hurricane Katrina came in, it was because the gambling and, you know, all the things that were happening there, you know, God's punishment came their way. Well, let me tell you this. Jesus here says it very, very clearly. No, that is not how God's justice works in the world. So whenever you hear it, just know first, no, it doesn't work like that. That's one of the things that God's wanting to tell us. But the thing about it is that it goes deeper, I believe, than that kind of like pointed example of like, you know, when uh, a shooting happens or when tragedy befalls or even the crisis that we see in Ukraine, right? It's easy for us. Many of us would say it's not because the people that are suffering did something wrong, right? We can say that. But my question, though, is do you believe it for your life and for the life of your kids? Do you believe it for your neighbor and your friends? Because that is way harder. Use that parenting example just again, right? As you watch your kids and they develop the habits, I'm sure that none of you have heard a comment or said a comment to yourself, if only I had done something differently, right? If only I had done something differently. And I remember meeting with a mom who was really going through a hard time because her son had uh, gone through a series of in and out of rehab and had been dealing with drugs and even found himself in jail. And I remember sitting down and hearing her story and, and listening to it, and I heard the refrain at least three times. 
I wonder what I could have done differently. I wonder what I could have done differently so that that wouldn't have happened. I wonder what I could have done differently so the bad thing didn't start happening. And it was this sense of guilt that she was carrying over her that she could have been the mother bear, right, later on in the story, to protect her child from the problems that would befall. And that the guilt that she had carried because something bad was going on in the life of her child had to do directly, directly with the problem that she created or the dynamics that she fostered. And I'm not trying to say that we're not culpable in some of these things. But I think that Jesus' words about the tragedy befalling the Galileans and those worshiping are the same ones that we ought to interrogate within ourselves. There's a, a book that at some point we're going to do a sermon series on, and, and I know I've mentioned it, but it was a professor at Duke. Her name was Kate Bowler, a professor in American religion. And just I had graduated, I was ser serving a church in North Carolina, uh, downtown Chapel Hill, and uh, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And she almost died. She almost died. And she actually was in the process of chemo and everything else. And she was an American Christianity professor who, by the way, critiqued the prosperity gospel. Fancy word for people that believe that if you do good in life, God will reward you in life, right? So if you pray the right prayers, give the right amount of money, you know, do those things, like the televangelist, give us all your money and good things will happen. You know, you'll become rich. God will double the amount that you give. Those sorts of ideas, right? So she critiqued that. But then when she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, she couldn't help but wonder what she had done wrong or had this lingering feeling, why did this happen to me? And so she wrote a book. Everything happens for a reason, and other lies I've loved. <laughs> because she interrogated the ways in which the prosperity gospel, this idea that if I do good in life, good things are going to happen. And she interrogated how even inside of her, she was a, a Duke tenured professor. She had done all the right things. She had made it to the top. Why then would tragedy befall someone like that? And, it, and it's a legitimate question, but built within that question is this sense that I did something to not deserve this. I did something to not deserve this. And, and it's the same sense of guilt that the mom faced with her child that was going through difficult time. It's the same sense of guilt that someone carries as they're on the downside of life, wondering, well, what went wrong? What did I do? And Jesus' words are yet the same. Stop thinking that life's consequences are results of you all the time. Because <laughs> there's this thing that Jesus teaches about, did you know? It's called grace. And he shares it in the next example. Because what does he do? He shares a story of a farmer again. 
who came to a tree that had not borne fruit for three years. Three years. This thing had not done anything. And so all practical purposes as a farmer is cut down the tree because it didn't do its job. It didn't do its job. But then the gardener, who remember Jesus kind of relates to, says what? Let's give it another year. Let's, let's give it a little love. <laughs> As a kapuna in Hawaii Kai, when I was a pastor there, plants need a little cake. <laughs> let's give it some dessert. Let's let it live a little bit. Let's see what happens. And, and I wonder what sort of fruit could grow in our lives if we gave up on the idea that we can make this sort of cause and effect happen in our lives of faith and in the lives of our family and lives of our children. And if we do the right things, the right things are going to happen. And I know it seems really simple when I say that, and you're like, oh, Pastor Ryan, I don't believe that. But I bet we believe that more than you think, right? If I only said it once to my child in the right way, they will never look at me again and then walk away and do the exact same thing, right? You know? What if we let go of this easy answer that this cause and effect relationship in the world, in our lives, and gave it one more year? And you might have also noticed that there's a lot of like, and all will perish in the scripture and, you know, things will go bad and it's really uh, difficult to read and, you know, some of those pieces with it. And as I was pondering, well, what does it look like then to bear fruit? You know what I think that some of us do is we see a problem in our lives. And you know what we do about it? We fix the problem in our lives, Right? And so when we hear this word repentance that Jesus talks about and the, uh, John the Baptist talks about, this idea that we must repent and turn from our ways, we think that, okay, great, so I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to start doing all these things. I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to start doing other stuff. But you know what we do in the process? We build the exact same problem that Jesus was trying to confront he was trying to confront the idea that you're in control. And so when you let go and repent and then start doing something else, if it's now you're like in God's will and doing the things in God's favor and you start doing that, now all of a sudden you start building the confidence back up to go down the exact same path that you were on before, thinking that you were determining the course of your faith, the course of your family, the course of all those things. And so we say, I'm just going to stop doing this because it's toxic for my family. I'm going to be good. I'm going to do good things. My family's going to be better for it. You can start building it up again. And then the whole time, what it means to repent means to come home. It means to come home. That's the Hebrew word shuv, to return home. One of the things I learned a while ago 
is that I, I, I've done all these things. I grew up in a small town, and I went to Japan. I taught English there. I went to Duke for graduate school. And I've done these things that some of my friends that had never left my town ever, you know, didn't do. And, and sometimes, because, you know, I, I, my friends, like, they have their own life, and they're in the town. Like, when I would show up, I would show up, and I, I would start sharing all the stories about the things that I did, right? Because they're, they're interesting, and they might all think better of me. Because I go home, and well, I went to Duke, and I got all these experiences. I've been here. I've been there. I've traveled, done all these things. You know what I found out? They don't care <laughs> at all, right? They don't care. In fact, it just alienates us. And as I was thinking about this sense of coming home and returning, I thought about that with us. God's inviting us to come home, to repent, and yet we show up to the doorstep saying to God, these are all the things I did, all the good stuff. Look, pat me on the back. I bore fruit. I'm going to make it happen. But the only fruit that God is looking for is for you to find that space. Remember last week we talked about the mother hen of love and comfort in God's wing. The sort of fruit that God wants for us is the fruit that comes from humility and walking with a sense that you don't know everything and that you're guided by grace and that you make mistakes and others might make mistakes and we might need grace and then we might need it again and we might need it again and again, because you, I'm afraid, will tell you, will never be perfect. Despite our Wesleyan, some of us at least might know the, the phrase Wesleyan perfection that we attain, try to attain. I, I say that because that's a thing within the Methodist Church. John Wesley, who was the founder, talked about perfection. And, and frankly, I, I learned about this before I was a Methodist, so it always drove me crazy. That drove me crazy. I was like, what are you talking about? No one's going to be perfect. But you know what I realized that I think Charles Wes or John Wesley meant about being perfect? It wasn't about doing the right things. Perfect was about surrendering ourselves over and over again to the reality that the only one who's perfect is God. And that God makes us perfect over and over and over again. And if you think that you can do it on your own, you can't. We build towers, idols. We pretend the fate of our children are in our hands. But God's calling us over and over again to recognize that God is God and that we're not. And that's what this Lenten journey is a reminder for us. So how might we cultivate a sense of humility during this season? Cultivate uh, the beauty that comes from lifting the burden off of your shoulders of the wrong decisions that you've made and the poor choices that have happened of the pain in this world determined by our hands alone. And so that would require us to let go. Let go of those easy answers, the tit for tat, 
Stop, let go of the idea that you actually control life <laughs> and the curveballs that will come your way. Let go of a conception of God who's going to pat you on the back for all of your good achievements and protect you then from all the harm that might come your way. And instead, let's cultivate this sense of peace, of humility, of grace for yourself, for your kids, for the world. Because we won't be able to resolve the violence and the oppression and the famine, but we can be bearers of God's good news that God's grace is for you, period, no matter what.